Hey, it's Brian, your lunatic friend. I'm back, telling more of the story of Jesus and music, mostly from the Sweet Comfort Band perspective. It's 1981, and according to my preacher dad, Jesus was supposed to have come back by now. Several years ago, my dad had made the mistake of trying to pinpoint the return of Christ. Through the 70s, my dad started to think that the world couldn't get any worse. Ha ha ha! He was wrong about that. But, but through my years in school, he'd heard Barry McGuire singing about Eva Destruction, and Richie Ferre's band, Buffalo Springfield, was singing, Something's Happened. And here, what it is ain't exactly clear. He had seen the assassination of Martin Luther King and President Kennedy, and even church music was becoming hedonistic. Saw kids dropping out, doing drugs, and growing their hair long, and his oldest son was one of them, except for the drugs. But early on, Dad wasn't a fan of what his oldest son was doing. He said to me once, I knew you had a heart for Jesus, and I knew you had a rebellious streak. Thought maybe you could be a missionary, or you might just raise your own hell. And then he looks me in the eye and he says, But I never thought you split it down the middle, and if the Sweet Comfort Band thought that now that we have refocused our purpose, life would become a cakewalk. Yeah, because now we had a cool representation of who we were on an album cover. But that bread truck we toured in was on its seventh transmission. I was 29 years old, and my wife was pregnant with our first baby. And I was still gone all the time. We were still on tour by early March of 1982, and we were in San Antonio for a concert when our truck finally gave up the ghost, needed an overhaul, and we had a concert the next night in Houston. At the concert that night, Kevin asked if anybody had a truck because we needed a ride to our next gig. Yeah, we were flying by the seat of our pants most of the time. After the music, a guy came up at the merch table and said, yeah, I drive an 18-wheeler. I can get your equipment there, but I can only carry one passenger. We were trying to decide who was going to ride with the truck when a guy in a wheelchair comes up and says, I can fly you there. I have a pilot's license. And yeah, we noticed that he had a handicap, but even back then, it was not polite to question someone's abilities because of their disabilities. And I was thinking, let me see, I could spend three and a half hours trying to get to Houston in a truck, or just an hour and a half in an airplane. And I opted for what was behind door number two. So the next morning, Rick Thompson and his brother Kevin and myself caught a cab to the Stinson Municipal Airport to meet a guy in a wheelchair who had a four-seater plane that had been modified to accommodate his handicap. Yeah, we were a little nervous, but he said he'd been flying for seven years. But I remember laughing because we couldn't find him when we got to the airport. He had a little mishap trying to get out of the bathroom with his wheelchair. In a small airport, they still had doors on the bathrooms. And we stood on the tarmac with him while two guys helped him into the airplane. Yeah, we were starting to have uncomfortable feelings, but we were already a bridge too far. The takeoff and the flight was pretty smooth for the first hour. I was in the seat behind the pilot when I noticed that he was looking all around like he was missing something. Then he looks over his shoulder and asks me to hand him a map of the Houston airspace. He would look at the map and then he would look out the window and then out the other side out of the window, and I was looking at Rick in the front seat with that look of what the heck's going on. Then he dropped down about 2,000 feet and started circling water towers in little towns. And I finally asked him what he was doing. He said, I'm looking for the name of a town on a water tower. We would discover later that he didn't file a flight plan. He was only qualified to fly by landmarks. He was going to follow Interstate 10 all the way to Houston. But apparently he had missed his off-ramp, and Texas is a big place to get lost in from the air. For the next 45 minutes, we were looking for for any signs of a city. And there wasn't even cows. And he was looking around, flying left and right and up and down. And now I was getting nervous. Watching the instruments that I understood, he was flying erratic, banking left and right and changing altitudes. It was starting to get dark and he didn't know where he was. That's when I noticed that we were also running low on fuel. He was fumbling with the radio and said over his shoulder, the radio doesn't seem to be working. He had dialed in the coordinates for the Houston airspace and was getting nothing. That's when I said, if you have to, just land 
landed on that dirt road over there. And he says, oh, I can't do that. That's against FAA regulations. Finally, on an open channel, someone came on the radio saying, this is Bay City Airport. You are 80 miles south of Houston. And he radios back, I'm out of fuel and I need to land right now. The Bay City Airport was a two-man, one-runway operation. When we finally saw the runway, it was running left to right of us and we don't have enough fuel to make an approach. So now he's going to bank the plane hard and try to set it down on a runway that is juxtaposed to the direction the airplane's going. He manages to put one wheel down on the runway and we hit so hard that I thought my teeth were coming out and the first impact was hard enough to knock the pilot unconscious and he falls over in Rick's lap. The airplane bounced and went back up in the air about a hundred feet and the left wing dips to the left and here's where Rick thinks he landed the plane. He grabbed the yoke and turned it to the right like he was driving a car. It did nothing. The plane stayed banked left and nose down 200 yards off of the runway and we went down in a marsh. And here's where I'd like to say that I was heroic, but all I remember doing was wanting to get out of that plane. I kicked the door open and bailed out. In about a foot of mud, the plane probably didn't burst into flames because there was no fuel in it. We slogged through the goo a couple hundred yards to the runway and it's the only time that I've ever kissed Rick Thompson. We were hugging and dancing on the runway because we were still here. We were eventually met by two cowboys in a pickup truck who had called the ambulance for the pilot. 30 minutes later, Kevin is on a payphone renting a car. We can still make the concert, he says. We'll only be two hours late. Randy had been there already and was playing a few songs to the audience that was there. The promoter had already set up all of our equipment. And surprisingly, no one left. They were still waiting for the concert when we got there. And Kevin gets on stage and says, sorry, we're late. And in the biggest understatement of all time, Kevin says, we ran into a snag. Talk about getting back on the horse. That had to have been the fastest time anyone ever did it. The next day, we would get on another plane to fly home, and a week later, my first son would be born. And I remember thinking how foolish my decisions were to make a choice on a whim for convenience sake. I remember thinking that this might be our last day on Earth, and the first thing I thought was not my life flashing in front of me, but rather all the people that I hadn't said anything to in weeks. I don't even think I called my wife that morning. The worst feeling I had in that experience was knowing that I might not have been able to say hello to my first son or say goodbye to my family and friends. It would change my perspective about what my purpose was, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And I thought of that scripture in the Bible where they say, Lord, didn't we do great things in your name? And God says, no, I don't even know you. In my case, God knows me, but he would have said, man, you're missing some really important things. After that, I always remembered what I said last before I left home. If you really want to please God, start by being thankful for the things he's given you in the first place. And one of those things now is having friends like you listening to my nutshell sermons and Jesus and music in the old days. It's a pleasure you're talking to you in the comments, and I can't thank you enough for supporting this podcast. I'm honored to know that you still believe in what I'm doing.